Welcome, everyone, to the Coffee Theology and Jesus podcast. I am your host, as always, Tim Whitaker, joined here by my co-host, Rob. Hey, Tim, that was a really weak introduction. No, that was a great introduction, no, Rob. was weak. I don't want to hear it. And I'm also joined here by the one and only Shane Claiborne. <laughs> Hey! Yes, finally! We are, we are living it up here in my, in my house. I am honored to have these guests and my lovely wife sitting next to me over here. Doesn't she's the peanut gallery? Yeah. <laughs> well, we're honored to be here, Shane. Honestly, I got to tell this story briefly to you. I'm sitting in Starbucks reading your book, getting saved all over again, and I go, you know, I should email the simple way and see if anyone from there is available to do an interview with. I wasn't even thinking about you. I figured you're somewhere doing something amazing. And um, in like five minutes, this lady, Rebecca, got back to me and goes, "Um, how about you interview Shane Claiborne? And I go, oh my gosh, my head just explodes. And I say, "Uh, sure, yes, that would be awesome. And You are easily impressed. I am easily impressed. But I'm just a huge fan. I got to be honest, Shane. I'm not going to lie. I am a a little bit kind of, uh, you know, I'm a little starstruck. He is the whole way over here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I just have immense respect for what you do. Oh, man. I just respect what you do a lot, Shane. I'm glad we're able to have this conversation because um, for the past, what, now maybe almost 10 years, people like Rob and myself have been in New Jersey uh, reimagining what church can be and what it should be and what it looks like. And it's been really an unbelievable journey. Um, And having someone who has been doing that here in Philadelphia, I'm just really happy to have you on. Awesome, man. So thank you. Good. I'm glad. Um, Let's just get right to it because we only have so much time and I feel like I could be here for hours. So Um, Shane, you wrote a book, what, almost 10 years ago now? It has been. Yeah. In fact, I just did a 10 year anniversary edition where I had to go back and put um, sort of like uh, scrap notes in the margins, you know, so I got to give it a little update, a little facelift, had to talk about my wife a little bit. didn't have that 10 years, her 10 years ago. So, uh, and you know, so it's been, it's been really wonderful. I mean, you know, I think what we do is throw our stories out and, uh, hope that they speak to somebody else. And it, it's, it's just beautiful to, I, I know all the people that have been a part of my journey and it's a gift to speak into someone else's own, own life and, and spiritual quest. So, well, yeah. I could definitely say for a fact you've spoken into my life. Honestly, you really have. When I read that book for the first time, I was traveling overseas doing some missions work. I was in Germany and I'm reading this book and I'm just like, I'm just so rocked because I grew up in the Christian culture my whole life. I have great parents. I was even homeschooled for nine years. Do you have a Lord's Gym t-shirt? No, but I have an Avalon t-shirt that glows in the dark. The band Avalon back in the day. So and DC Talk, Jesus DC, Freak, I have Jars of Clay Flood. Yep, I, I had the Jesus Freak hoodie. I was a total church kid my whole life, uh, and I, I'm grateful for it. Honestly, yeah, you yeah. know, it, it, it was great, and my parents were great people. They they raised me really well, um, and I'm honored about that. I'm, I'm happy about it. But when I started reading your book, I was in this this time where I'm just re- I'm thinking through things on my own for the first time. I'm saying, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does this look like? And then I pick up this little book called Irresistible Revolution, and my mind just gets blown. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I never even thought about these things as being kingdom or Jesus issues, yeah. and it, it just it really wrecked me in the best way. It, it was it was awesome. So I appreciate that. Thank you for wrecking my life, Shane. <laughs> Sweet dude. Sweet. <laughs> Let's start with this. I have a few questions for you. Um, obviously, you know, I, I don't think all my listeners know who you are. Would you mind kind of giving a little bit of a summary about who you are, what what you do, what you're doing here in Philly? Totally, like man. Yeah. Well, I uh, I grew up in East Tennessee. I'm a Tennessee boy, and. Uh, Maryville, Tennessee, East Tennessee. In fact, uh, I, I, I grew up, I love the South. You know, I, I love the folks that um, showed me Southern hospitality and um, introduced me to Jesus. And I also wanted to get out of that world just a little bit. And I, I knew that all is not well in the world, in, in, in every place, in everybody's life. And so I wanted to see... Um, other other pieces of that reality. So I came up here to Philly mostly to go to college, and uh, my mom wasn't exactly stoked about that. I'm an only child, you oh, know. And my mom was like, "If God wants you to go to school in Philly, God can pay for it." And I got a I got a like full tuition scholarship. So I was like, "Mom, God paid the bill," <laughs> you know. Go. And boom, I came up here, and uh, I love it. I, I I studied. I like how Carl Bart said, "We well, got to read the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other." Mm. Yeah. I think by that he was saying, you know, like not just use our faith as a ticket into heaven 
and uh, uh, license to ignore the world around us, but really to care about the world. So I studied sociology mm-hmm. and, um, and the Bible, and I ended up uh, in my sophomore year of college, I heard about a group of homeless families, mostly moms and kids, that were living right here in this neighborhood, uh, not too far from here, actually, where we're recording this. And they were living in an abandoned Catholic church building uh, and sadly, the response of the Catholic Church was that they couldn't stay there. They were given an eviction notice, and if they weren't out within two days, they could be arrested. And so, anything—that's what—that's kind of the spark that lit the fire for us. Um, the families hung a banner on the front of the building that said, "How can we worship a homeless man on Sunday and ignore one on Monday?" Mm. Powerful. So it really woke us up as students yeah. at the time. We started coming down, uh, and basically you know stood alongside those families and say we're with them you know we said we're with them if you come to evict them then we're we're going to stay alongside of them and um and then uh, a lot of those families got housing a lot of them are still dear friends to this day and we ended up starting our community out of that so the simple way was sort of born out of that struggle Katie and I got married in old St. Ed's Cathedral. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow, uh, that that's old awesome. Building. We got permission to go back in. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> I might have had a, uh, a band and bar from that place or something, so I want to make sure they knew while we were back in there. And, uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, good. but that's, you know, that was 1995, so it's been over 20 years ago. We've been building this little village at the Simple Way ever since. Now we've got, you know, a dozen houses and gardens and stuff here and wow. murals and um kids we've seen grow up you know and we're we're still doing that work that we we set out to do 20 years ago and we're also really inspired by the early church you know in the book mm-hmm. of acts where it says no one uh of the early church it says you know that no one claimed any of their possessions were their own they shared everything they had they worshiped in homes they you know the gospel happened around dinner tables and out of living rooms and that's really what we're we're still up to do you think for you what was that you know, the, the moment that this kind of became so real to you where you said, I got to change my lifestyle drastically, was it in the church when that, that whole situation happened with the homeless people? And is, is that kind of what, what, what really woke you up to saying, you know what, I need to live this way as well as preach this way? Is yeah, that kind of the moment? I think there's different catalytic moments, you know, that really were, were formative for me. And that, that was certainly one of them. Um, it's kind of when I say I got, uh, rebaptized in in the the waters of justice you know i really began to see like wow that the, the, to, to to love jesus is to care about injustice and, and to love my neighbor means not just loving like not just being a good friend to folks on my college campus but it means wrestling with what does love look like when someone's sleeping on the floor of an abandoned building or you know in a cardboard box what like what does love require of me and and that's definitely where I started wrestling with that and there's a lot of other moments you know I, I where I began to ask questions about uh, violence and, and the idea of redemptive violence you know can violence end violence like like uh, is there any place in light of Jesus for uh, us to use violence and you know coming out of a military family uh, my dad was a, a veteran of vietnam like coming from tennessee where right. you know we got country music <laughs> yeah. this house is protected by the good lord and a gun right, and if you come right. unwanted you'll meet them both right. son you know as i grew up like that with guns right. and, and and so then but uh you know starting to ask those questions was was incredible and it, it created a lot of dissonance in me you know of, of there, there's always new uh, things on the horizon, uh, like like you know, when we first started challenging laws that targeted the homeless here in Philly, we you know some of our brothers and sisters were specifically targeted by laws that made it um, illegal to be homeless, made it illegal to sleep in public places and eat in public spaces, and and so we um, had public picnics and sleepouts, you know, and. and um, and eventually, you know, we, we went to jail for some of those things and challenged those laws in court. That was all new to me. Like, I, you know, <laughs> so I grew up thinking, like, <laughs> right. Christians don't go to jail. And right, I, you know, right. And, and then, I, exactly. you know, and then I started, uh, you know, really taking my faith seriously. And it, it's uh, landed me there. Uh, and, 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 you know, I, and Dr. King said when I first went to jail, I, I was a little troubled but then i looked at history and found that i was in really good company right <laughs> no it's true absolutely so that but i'm i'm uh, like 
really glad to have been, you know, on this adventure and had a great group of people to do it with. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Speaking of uh, of justice and especially the death penalty, I've noticed, I've seen some of your writings that have come out more recently. There seems to be a big push um, when it comes to, you're, it seems like you're really fighting against the death penalty, which is great. And you link that back to being consistently pro-life. Uh, I think you said it's uh, um, pro-life from womb to the tomb. Yeah. Can you speak to that and kind of what you mean by that? And I ask because, especially in our culture, the, the abortion issue is very polarizing and it's, you know, both sides are so dug in. It seems like you're trying to just eclipse that saying, listen, I'm trying to be consistent that I'm pro-life from the womb all the way through. Um, what kind of led you there? And, you know, how do you how do you articulate that viewpoint now? Yeah, well, it, it is a really helpful framework, I, I think. For some of us, that's newer language that really resonates. We're like, yes, that's it. You yeah, know? exactly. But for some folks, the, many Catholics, many uh, Anabaptists, Mennonites, others, you know, that's been a, like a framework for hundreds of years. So I think like what that does, though, is when our um, shaping, our, our framing ethical, you know, kind of uh, worldview is the sanctity of life. Yes, that's it's a really beautiful thing because it's inclusive of so many of these other things that we're inconsistent on. You know, so I think pro-life has come often to uh, we think that means anti-abortion, and I, I think that 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 that's. Um, uh, that that abortion is a very important issue, but it's not the only life issue. You right. know, um, to stand consistently for life to me, uh, it means caring about uh, the movement for Black Lives. Uh, it means caring about the death penalty, caring about um, immigration and refugees that, whose lives are at stake right now, um, and and uh, uh, the the environment creation. You know, I think all these. If we see life is created by God, God stands on the side of life. Like then, right. that uh, is a powerful statement. And I think it also um, it it comes with responsibility too. To I like to say I'm pro life, like Mother Teresa was pro life. And for Mother Teresa, she is you know this icon of of, of for the pro life movement. Not just because she was against abortion, but she was also uh, passionately against the death penalty on all kinds of occasions, called governors and parole board folks that were about to execute someone and challenge them, you know, right. like, like uh, follow Jesus, you know, right. and blessed are the merciful for they will be shown. So I, I think like what it also meant is that she didn't just wear a t-shirt or hold a sign, right. like she took in 14 year old women. She brought in kids from that were abandoned in the train stations, orphans. Like I know because I saw them, I met them, you know, and they said, right. you know why we call her Mother Teresa? Because she's our mom, you know, right. and literally yeah. like she raised them. So I think that is also what it means is, is that we don't just need ideologies. Um, we need um, action. And Mother Teresa had action, you know, she didn't just have some kind of uh, uh, convictions that she had. She had a real commitment that translated into her life. And that's why, you know, so many, she has so much credibility, you know? So I, I, I think that's, so the, with the death penalty in particular, though, I will say one of the reasons that I have, I'm really amplifying that right now. Yes. Is, is, there's a few reasons. One of them is that with a lot of these issues like abortion, there are a lot of Christians that are standing vocally and publicly against abortion. Absolutely. With the death penalty, it's actually just the opposite. Like the, the, the death penalty has succeeded in America, not in spite of Christians, but because of us. Right, and, right. and wherever Christians are most concentrated is where the death penalty continues to flourish. So, um, you know, that, that old cartoon that says, we've met the enemy and it's us. You know, that, exactly. that's the truth on that. Yeah. So I, I, I believe that that's changing and that we can be a part of that change. And this is a time where a lot of folks in the movement believe we're really close. You know, that executions are the lowest that they've been. They drop lower every year, but they're the lowest they've been in like 25 years. Death sentences, new death sentences, are the lowest they've been in almost 50 years. Um, last year, two states alone, Georgia and Texas, were almost all of the executions uh, were just in two states. So I think it's on its way out, but that's still the Bible Belt. You know, Georgia right. and Texas, these states are, right. the, the Bible Belt is the death belt, as one of my buddies says, you know, mm. and we want to change that because I think that the question is not 
are we going to abolish the death penalty? But I think one of the questions is where will Christians be in that movement? And it doesn't take much courage to look back a generation later and say slavery is wrong. <laughs> you know, after we've yeah. abolished it, but <laughs> right. like, this is a time to stand up. I, I, you're right on the money. Um, everything you're saying, I just resonate so much with because for me, it's an inconsistent viewpoint to hold. Right? We're going to talk about how important abortion is. Which I, I'm, I'm like you. I, I agree. But but then I feel like when I get into you know, hey, we should be against the death penalty. All of a sudden. I'm like, where's the, where's the rest of my faith? Where are they? You know, there's no one else, not many people behind where's this. Where's my peeps? Yeah, yeah, yeah they're right. gone. And, yeah, they, and yeah. For me, it's just a matter of being consistent. If God's the author of life, yeah. and we believe that man can't take life away in the womb, why are we saying that man can take life away later on? You know, and I, I, I align with that. How do you, because I know how I deal with it. I just get frustrated and aggravated, and, and I vent to my poor wife about how frustrated I am. But how do you deal with that? When you have a really a Christian culture as a whole who, you know, would say, no, death penalty is, you know, it's justice and it's, it's this and that and that. How do you have that, that discussion without going insane? Because I just found myself getting so to the point of just like, why am I having this ridiculous discussion over over killing someone? You know, how do you have that debate with, with other Christians and how do you engage them and kind of have that dialogue while still holding firm? A couple of thoughts on that. One, one of them is I, I have a little bit of patience with people because I was them. Like I spent a lot of my life arguing for the death penalty, convinced that it was ordained by God, had its roots in scripture. So I know that world and I know that feeling of feeling like this. How can you be against the death penalty? This is what the Bible says, you know, and yet the right. more I looked at that, it's actually my faith that has compelled me to think differently about this and my commitment to Jesus. Um, uh, I mean, I look at the scripture and would have a number of problems if I thought murderers were beyond redemption. You know, uh, exactly. for starters, M- Moses murdered someone. Yeah. So did David, you know, killed Uriah to cover up his sin with Bathsheba, like yeah. Saul of Tarsus over Saul Stephen's execution. Like there's, so the Bible would be a lot shorter without grace, you know? And, right, and, and, right. And, 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 and I, I think that that, um, that's where I, I like to go, especially with Christians is going at the, at the heart of this issue of the death penalty is a very deep question at the heart of the Christian faith, do we believe that anyone is beyond redemption? Exactly. And, and um, some denominations have a really good statement on this, like the Methodist Church and others, where they say, like, the, um, the death penalty undermines the redemptive work of Jesus and the possibilities of redemption that we see through Christ. Like, we believe Jesus died so that we don't have to die. You know, that's right? the whole point it's, of our faith. I mean, that's, right. that's 101. So, but I, so I think like Jesus is the ultimate subversion of violence and death and, and, and execution. You know, as he exposed it on the cross, he showed us, made a spectacle of death, but not to endorse it, but actually to subvert it and, and triumph over it with love and an in, empty tomb. Like that's, like, that's the end of the story. Right. So I, th- I think any time we... There's a lot of theology out there that I think can be counterproductive and, and exa- exactly the opposite of what Jesus came to do. Like, I, I think Jesus came to heal the world of violence. And so it breaks my heart when Christians um, uh, are the champions of death rather than the challengers of death, whether that's the death penalty or war. I mean, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, love your enemies. I think it becomes really hard to love our enemies and simultaneously prepare to kill them. So I, I think right. that, you know... The, well, Shane, the, Shane, context. Crazy so idea. We, we have to bring context <laughs> into it and we have to <laughs> rationalize these things because they're super uncomfortable. And so when we read these black and white words as human nature, we have to justify why, like almost like where's the loophole, right? Yeah, like yeah. someone has to say, oh, well, what's the real Greeks say? Oh, well, it's only this kind of enemy. Or, you know, we, we like to put all these different qualifiers yeah, or, on or things that are uncomfortable. Say, some folks say, well, Jesus told us all that to show us how fully uh, uh, depraved we are, you know, that we, we actually are such sinners, we can never do it, we need grace. Right, right? Yeah, right. sure, we need grace, right. but like... Can't we try? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> An A for effort or something, yeah, you know? That's right, and, yeah. and that's exactly right, is, you know, I find myself, and I'm, Rob and I have had these discussions at nauseum, um, where I'm reading these words of Jesus, I'm like, okay, love your enemy. And then I look at our culture and the Christian culture, and I'm like, okay, we're not doing that, but we justify why we're not. But cursing, that's a big deal, you know, or or whatever it is. If you know, in some in some denominations, having a beer is just this cardinal thing that you you should never do that. But the death penalty, for sure, and gorging yourself, oh, by all means. But 
these things are, are big deals to us in the Christian culture, and these other things are not so big, even though Jesus talks about them, right? And I, I just find myself over and over, I think, I look, you know, I look at this big picture, and I'm like, man, like, how do I, how do I be this impact of change without getting into discussions over Facebook that change no one? <laughs> I have to delete my Facebook account, Shane. I'm telling you right now, my wife is always like, you need to get off Facebook. And I'm like, yeah, you're probably right. Cause I'm changing no one's mind having these ridiculous discussions that really go nowhere. How do you find yourself impacting change the most? Well, I, I think you, you make a good point, which is that I don't know too many people that get argued into thinking differently. Right. Um, uh, but I know a whole lot of people that get storied into thinking differently. So I tell a lot of stories, and and um, I tell stories that challenge our presumptions, you know, um, because they challenge mine. You know, um, we we thought, well, what about the victims of violent crimes? And and so exactly that's why right. I start my death penalty book with victims that are against the death penalty, and these are folks that. I mean, they're heroes of mine. They're people that have experienced the most horrific tragedies I've ever. I can even conceive in my mind like Suzanne Bossler that was stabbed multiple times in the head her dad was killed and she walks away from that still convinced that violence is the problem not the solution and it's not going to bring her dad back he was a pastor it's not going to honor him and what he would want to call for someone else's death she says you know I I uh want she wanted a different form of justice and I I hear that that story and it, it smells a lot like Jesus, you know, and that, that's where, yeah, um, so I think the stories, you know, stories, uh, uh, that of, uh, that we, we think, well, you know, we're killing the worst of the worst. And then you start looking at it and it, it's objectively clear that we're killing not the worst of the worst, but the poorest of the poor. And mm. too often the determinants of who actually gets executed are not the atrocity of a crime, but they're the resources of the, the defendant, um, Arbitrary things like the race of the victim is a big determinant of actually who gets executed. Um, two percent of the counties in the U.S. we have like three thousand counties. Like two percent of them are actually a majority of the executions are coming from these now. And really? so like stuff like that, you know, like yeah, geography, absolutely. a zip code can determine whether you live or die. I didn't know any of that, you know. Right. But then I look at people. I meet folks like my friend Derek Jameson who was convicted of a crime he had nothing to do with, spent 20 years on death row, had six, six different execution dates, and then the prosecution was forced to release 34 pieces of evidence that proved his innocence. Wow. He's released wow. um, without any apology or any compensation. Right. You know, Whoop free, is that good enough? But that's why you see like a lot of conservatives uh, concerned about the death penalty, I'm I'm really optimistic. I think there's all kinds of folks that are going. How much do we trust the state? You know, like these That's the broken question. human institutions with the irreversible power of life and death. I mean, do we do we trust our, <laughs> right. our government that much? Right. Like, it's never going to make well, a mistake. It's funny you, know? you say that because one of the, one of the good things about the information age that we're in is that more and more information is coming out about what's actually happening. Right? Like uh, Netflix released that documentary uh, Thirteen. Um, yeah, unbelievable. We played it on our wall over man, here. Yeah. I, I watched it in my apartment alone. At the end, I'm, I'm almost bawling my eyes out. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, like I had no idea this was even the thing. I, I never put the pieces together in this way. Um, or I even watched some, I don't know if you saw the um, the six-part documentary uh, for O.J. Simpson with ESPN. It was mind-blowing yeah, yeah. how they tied that into the racial tensions in Los Angeles, things that I never knew about. Um, and I think uh, a lot of people, millennials, uh, the the generation before us, were kind of waking up and saying, wait a second, something isn't right here. And something is happening that, that we need to be a part of the solution to. Because like you just said to your own point, so many of these people who are dying on death row, it comes down to things like possibly race or zip code you're living in or how much money you had to afford, afford a good lawyer. Yeah. Those things should Well, you not mentioned OJ Simpson and uh, uh, folks have said it's the difference between the OJs and the no Jays, you know, mm. and, I, and I don't know if, you know, everything right. that happened, but I do know that if it hadn't been OJ Simpson with the resources that he had, that story could have ended very differently. And that Absolutely. story does end differently in a lot of people's lives, you know, that we now know we're innocent and we're um, uh, executed for those crimes. And you have stories of folks that we know killed people like the Unabomber, you know, uh, right. uh, Ted Kaczynski that, that, 
um, is alive because uh, I think of a number of factors that uh, were in his favor and having resources to, to defend himself and, you know, uh, Ivy League education. And I don't want him dead. I don't, I don't want anybody <laughs> right, dead. You know? <laughs> yeah, for the record, you're not advocating. You're right. But I see your point, though. Yeah, but, yeah. but you, you, you know, you, so you, you kind of go like at a certain point, you, you, you go, well, this, the idea of equal justice under the law inscribed on the U.S. Supreme Court exactly. is, is not what we see right now. Right. And, and, uh, um, and now we know, you know, there's, there's 157 people now that have proved their, that have been released from death row, exonerees, folks that were wrongfully convicted and survived death row. 157, that means for every nine executions, there's been one exoneration. Wow. And you, you imagine like if every 10 planes that took off, one crashed, we'd right. be like, whoa, right. yeah. there's yeah. something wrong, Landall. you know? Got like, to rethink the whole thing. Mayday, mayday, stop the planes from taking right. off, you <laughs> right. know? Immediately. so right. But, you know, and I'm passionate about this, but I, I think it raises all right. of these other questions, like, like you're saying about mm-hmm. race. When we look at our racial history, um, the death penalty, it, it's been said um, by Brian Stevenson, an incredible uh, lawyer in Alabama, he says that, the death penalty is the direct descendant of, of lynching. Wherever lynchings were happening a hundred years ago, are where executions are happening today. Wow. Um, and in 1950, as we moved from lynching to uh, a more pervasive uh, state of executions, um, African Americans were 22 percent of the population, but they were 75 percent of executions. Three of every four executions was African American person. And now, you know, you kind of flash fast forward 70 years. It's it's like we have African Americans are about 13 percent of our population, but they're still almost half of death row. Um, there are over a third of executions are African Americans, and we look at the mass incarceration and excessive right. punishment. The fact that one in every three young black boys born today will go to prison unless right. we begin to do something about our racial history um, and the, le- the 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 terrible legacy that slavery has left us. So, like, yeah, I, this is my faith. I, I believe that Jesus cares about that stuff, and yeah. I'm stoked that more and more Christians are, you know, because we're seeing that the kingdom of God is not just something we hope for when we die, but something we're to bring on Absolutely. earth. We're, we're to seek first the kingdom of God on right. earth, you know. Right. And, we're and of the kingdom, right? Wherever we walk, the kingdom of God is walking within us. That's yeah. our job is to usher in the kingdom of God wherever we're going right. as so Christians. What does it look like? Like, I don't believe the death penalty has a place in the kingdom of God. Right. I don't believe that the kingdom of God looks like one in three African-American men going to prison. I, I like Absolutely. So I, I want to be a part of the change of that, you know. And I, I think that's why it's uh, an exciting time to be alive as a Christian right now. Yeah, Rob, I want to be fair to you because you haven't said a word, and I know I'm <laughs> Mr. Talker. So, do you? Is there a question you wanted to ask? And also, your microphone. Oh, yeah. nice and close. All right, there. Is that good? I can, oh. t- I can tell you really want to talk about Donald Trump. No, <laughs> <laughs> oh, he had no, to bring it up. Rob, we're not going there. favorite subject, dude. Well, yeah. I got to go. We got to go. Okay, commercial break. <laughs> Let's pray. So one of the. Um, one of the questions like we kind of had lined up was what what fundamental theology fuels your lifestyle but i think we through all of these things that we're talking about we're kind of already answering that question and i think it's the sanctity of life it doesn't matter if it's before you're born there's a sanctity of life issue there it doesn't matter if after you're born and you're a young child there's a sanctity of life there maybe you've hit a rough patch and you find yourself homeless and you have these kids there's sanctity of life there. Yeah. You find yourself in a war-torn country, and you, you're trying to do anything you can to save yourself and your family. There's a sanctity of life issue there. Back to criminals, there's a sanctity of life issue there. Yeah. And I think that is, what, from what I'm hearing, is really the pervasive... The, the trickiness with that is that we are conditioned to think that we've only got uh, certain options. You know, like, I think that's the... the, um, the, the short-sightedness of like a two-party system you know is like there's not a consistent ethic of life in the republicans or the democrats or in any of the leading candidates in this this election you know you had one person that is uh passionately against abortion but for the death penalty you had another person that's you know taking one issue over another and i think like those of us that care about gun violence and right. you know reducing abortions eliminating abortions like all those things like uh they there's just no there's no home and i right. think that's why you know we we can't compromise the values of jesus and and so that sanctity of life uh is is a, a very um 
beautiful framework. No one says it better than Jesus. So, you know, what, 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 sum it all up. And he says, love God and love your neighbor. Yeah. Yeah. And to me, that also means like trying to make sure our neighbor doesn't die and right. our neighbor's dignity does not get squashed, you right. know? And, and Well, you, you now that when you said there's really no home for that, sometimes when you're trying to say, yes, we want to help out with gun violence and also we're, we're pro-life and, you know, because I find myself as well, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm like, is there anyone else who thinks this way? Like, I'm trying to find the consistent thread, right. you know, and you're, like you said, the political cycle, and you have one person who's saying, oh, I'm pro-choice in the womb, but the death penalty is bad. You have the other person saying the complete opposite. And it's like, can't we say yes to both? Is, yeah. Why is Well, the interesting thing is, like, uh, the, the, the interesting thing is when you say who thinks like this, incidentally, all of the Christians for the first 300 years, you know? Right. <laughs> I mean, like, actually, we're, we're consistently... Um, right. it, it is wild how consistent they were. Mm. Um, uh, my friend Ron Sider wrote a tremendous book called The Early Church on Killing. And he goes through every single issue in, really? with their own words. Like he's, he's not paraphrasing. He right. actually has their own words uh, of uh, all of these different great thinkers of the faith and what they said about abortion, what they said about um, the death penalty and military service and uh uh, violence in every single case, you know, oh, we, we, there, there's this beautiful, consistently stand against death and for life. One of them that I love, uh, Cyprian, he said, "Why do we, if a if one person kills another person, we call it murder, we call it evil, but why do we sanctify it when it's done in mass by our state?" Right, so when the government does it through the death penalty right. or war, somehow we say this is virtuous or this is justice right. or this is, um, we, we pray right. for God's blessing, right. and and, uh, and and yet I think that that it's it's a absolute contradiction, you know, and I I think Jesus kind of is a whistleblower on that. Well, that's yeah, I'm I'm with you all the way. Um, I want to change gears a little bit here because um, to keep things moving. So one of the questions I was thinking about when um when we were going to do this interview was one thing I thought about was when I read your book, right? I'm reading your book. I'm just, I'm so wrecked by it. And I'm like, okay, what do I do? Like what? I mean, I, you know, I live in, in New Jersey. I, I work for a big corporation, you know, like I'm, I'm not, I, I don't have the means right now just to throw everything out and move into, you know, into Philadelphia or, or a really poor area, but here I am in Burlington, you know, in a decent area. What do I do? So my question is, you know, let's say you have another guy, like like a father who's reading this. He has a mortgage, three kids, he has a car, he, you know, he works nine to five and he re- he's reading your book and he goes, what do I do? How do Christians start these like really, what, what, what are the baby steps just to living the ways of Jesus, like in a really authentic way, because I think that more and more Christians are waking up to that kind of that contradiction of, you know, we're on Sunday morning, we're praising Jesus, and then we're sometimes we do things that are just so contrary to that God that we serve. And, and when it comes down to His words, you know, whether it's things like the death penalty or even lifestyle choices that we make, um, you know, um, with what with how we vote with our wallet, all that kind of stuff. And when you read your book, it can be almost so overwhelming. Like, where do I even start? For you, you know, when it comes to the church as a whole, there's, so, there's what, over 100 million people, I think, who attend the Sunday morning service on Sundays. How do we start just giving them practical ways to live a kingdom-first lifestyle? Man, well, I, there, there's so many things that pop into my mind. The first, the, the starting point, I think, is, is that um, we, we don't just have a compassion problem in the church, but I think we have a relationship problem. We've yeah, got some definitely. relational disconnects, right? Absolutely. So it's not that we don't care about poor people. We, we really just don't know many poor people by name, a lot of folks. You know, it, it, it's not that we... Uh, for many people, uh, it's not that we don't trust or care about Muslims, uh, but we we really don't have a lot of Muslim friends. You know, um, there are people that hate and distrust Muslims. Let me be clear, right. but and some right. of them are Christian or say they're Christians. But right. like I I think that that relationship is where things really have to start, and and that's the hardest thing. I think the hardest thing, you know, in a marathon is the first few steps. You know, like <laughs> yeah, it's no, get, getting right. to the starting line. Right. Um, not the finish line, you know, but actually like having like, and, and I think we've got to find some on ramps into those relationships. Like Jesus said, when I was in prison, did you visit me? 
um, like folks in prison are not going to come find the church. We've got to get into the, right. the, those places. We've got to find folks where they're suffering. So, I mean, there are some really great opportunities for that. I think now, these days, it's beautiful because you can access some of those through social media and stuff. Like in Philly, we've got this massive movement that I'm so proud to be affiliated with called the uh, the New Sanctuary Movement. Our whole city is, is rallying around immigrants and refugees, and the church is in the forefront of that you know and it's because relationships are there we know neighbors that um, face uh, deportation we know folks that have lived here for 20 years that moved here from El Salvador you know we know all these so I think that when it becomes we we won't make injustice history until it first becomes personal and there's nothing that puts a fire in your bones than actually being in relationship to people who are affected by these things and i think it's also true that like it's easier to pass really oppressive policies when you don't know people it's easier to kill sign a death warrant for someone if you've never actually had an interaction with them and and so i think those layers are one of the things we've got to kind of start with um but then I, I, I think a lot of things, Mother Teresa had a beautiful line um, where she said, Calcuttas are everywhere if we'll only have eyes to see. You know, so pray that God would give you eyes to see the marginalized, the lonely. And she also said, like, it's not about doing great things. It's about doing small things with great love. So, you know, there's so many stories that inspire me of um, young people that are visiting elderly folks in retirement homes that they, you know, went in and got a list of folks that don't have any visitors or family and they go visit them. You know, I think there's stories of folks that are, uh, I just was with this young, this group of folks that uh, the, these young people started an alternative prom for folks with uh, physical and especially with mental mm-hmm. intellectual oh, wow, disabilities awesome. and they so cool. you know crown someone with down syndrome as right. the pre- you know king of the prom and actually they had everybody was like king and queen you know they were all wow. celebrating everybody so i think there's a lot of cre- sometimes we just need uh, we suffer from a uh, lack of imagination and I, I think that's where community becomes so important is yeah. um we become more generous by hanging out with generous people. You know, if everything that you're hearing is from the Kardashians, you're going to be pretty warped in how you think about money, you know? And so I think like that's where continually coming back to like Jesus and having people that are, um, trying to, um, to, to, to march to the beat of that drum. Like it allows us to be, um, not feel like we're, we're crazy because we, um, right. you know, fix our income uh, and, and live off of 10% of our income or something like that. I think there's a lot right. of people that can like kind of encourage that imagination. So, um, and there's things like that we've done, like uh, my friends and I created a group of folks that tithe together and give 10% of our incomes and a hundred percent of that money goes to um, uh, meet needs of folks. It's inspired by the early church. You know, they put the offerings at the apostles' feet and gave it away to folks they didn't need. So we got inspired by that. And and, uh, now, you you know, like when our corner store was robbed, we were able to replace the money that they lost. A neighbor's car was vandalized. We're able to fix it up. And we just say, hey, there's a bunch of us that believe in bearing each other's burdens. You know, we're trying to love each other as we would want to be loved. We're trying to follow Jesus. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing. So I think some things like that, you know, just having a pool of people that are, you know, giving 10% together and figuring out how to relationally, but it also means you're in relationship with people that, um, are, are, you know, being, um, uh, treated unjustly or may not have everything that they need, you know? So I, I think we need to experiment with those things more. Yeah. When you were talking your first point about, um, relationally, like that's the first step. One of my favorite stories in the gospel is Jesus and the woman at the well. He went, he knew she was going to be there. He went to a place where a Jewish man would never go. He went to a place and talked to a woman that a Jewish man would never talk to. And so he was doing all of these things that society says, you're not supposed to be doing that. But he knew there was someone there, and he said, I want to have a relationship with that person. He was very intentional about what he did. I think one of the things that we are lacking, and I think Tim and I have sparked about, uh, spoke about this many times, is we're lacking that intentional relationship. Not with people that we want to have a relationship with, we're very intentional about that, but being intentional about relationships that maybe won't benefit us outwardly. It will benefit us in many other ways, 
which I, I'm sure you can attest to, the relationship that you have gathered, they've benefited you in many ways that is not going to be fiscally or population-wise or popularity-wise, but those relationships matter because they're of eternal value at this point. Well, I, the 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 fact is, you know, I think Jesus can, is is always uh, present in those relationships. He's always being interrupted. He's uh, someone's, you know, pulling on his shirt, or and, and a lot of that is space that we've uh, kind of carefully uh, taken away from our life. We don't have time to just sit with somebody that we didn't plan to sit with. You know, it's not in right. our daytime or to you know be with a woman at the well <laughs> right. or something. And so we, right. you know, but I, I think we've got to make space for interruptions mm -hmm. again. Um, stories like the Good Samaritan, you know, I, I always want to preach on that. I say people get beat up at really inconvenient times, you know, like it's, in, <laughs> and so we like, but we're living in a place right now where um, whether it's Standing Rock or Freddie uh, Gray or like the next injustice, it may it may interrupt our rhythm. You know, mm -hmm. I think we can also like ask. Uh, like the, the, I, I'm 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 a big fan of not um, getting bogged down by guilt. I think guilt can indicate things may not be what they could be sometimes, mm -hmm. but like love really has to motivate us. And and um, and. The fact is, I don't do this work out of guilt. I don't, I don't think I ever would have sustained it out of guilt. You know, yeah, like, absolutely. Like, um, we we love what we do. I I feel like absolutely um, honored to call this neighborhood home and to mm -hmm. call my neighbors my friends and um and 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 to to so I I think to love what we do and even as we're renovating abandoned houses, like it's awesome to see a dead space come back to life. You know, like I I think sometimes, um, we you know we had some cars that were running off vegetable oil. So we learned how to convert a diesel engine to run off veggie oil. And you look at all that and you're like, it's freaking awesome. Yeah, you know, right. like, why would I settle for a Porsche when I can <laughs> right. have a veggie bus? Right. You know? Yeah, yeah so. definitely. <laughs> no, I mean, that's, that's great stuff. I, I think that one of the, um, like roadblocks to that kind of mentality is that, and, um, it's that sometimes I think some of these issues are so heavily politicized that if you, um, if you happen to identify, to identify with one camp over the other and you say something shame like you know the environment matters people automatically are going to just label that a certain political viewpoint as well like it's so they're so intertwined the political viewpoint with whatever it is that you're saying um and you know obviously i think that the christian majority in our culture swings more to the right on average and so i think it could be hard because you even mentioned things like standing rock or freddie gray i know i can just picture people who are listening to this who lean right what they're thinking like oh this is just liberal bias and you know oh well this is just talking points and everything is just it's so loaded with that kind of um garbage or just baggage on the back of it how do you cut through um the over politicization politicization am i saying that right rob Politicalization. Political, okay, yeah, you know what I'm saying, though. Yeah, the over-politicizing. Politics, schmolitics, yes, I think that's, that's what you're going for. Yeah. Politics, politics, yeah. You know, how do you, how do we as a church overcome Also was things? a good song by the uh, MXPX, you remember that band? Oh, oh yeah. Remember the song, Politics, <laughs> They were at First Unitarian Church in Philly a couple months ago. A buddy of mine saw them, yeah. Yeah, they're all like 40, <laughs> just trying to rock yeah, out. that's yeah. awesome. It was like a reunion got, thing, like you a, know? Like a knee brace on. <laughs> yeah, pretty yeah, much, yeah, it's pretty much. Awesome. Well, it's like when I saw Emery, they were on their 10-year uh, tour for The Question, and uh, we saw them in Lancaster, and it was great. So, Emery, if you're listening, you come, come on the podcast, I'll have you on. Shameless plug. So anyway, no. But, but my point, though, you know, Shane, is that how do you cut through this stuff? Because it, it's difficult. Well, the, one of the things that we should say as Christians, I think, is is that we refuse to try to confine our our convictions and faith to any party or candidate. Um, yeah. I, uh, I I like to say, you know, I, I'm not left or right. I'm centered on Jesus, and I hope that that's <laughs> what I am. You know, I I really. Um, don't believe that the. I think there's some some truth in different passions within sure. the, these these parties, and we end up. And and it's what I would say Jesus was doing a lot of times too, is he was pulling the best out of these things. You're going the Essenes that kind of run off and build their own society in the desert. There's on to some, they're on we can learn something from that you know like they're building a new society in the old one like we we, we look at the the Pharisees and uh, they've got some good stuff to say a lot, a lot of those laws. They're good laws, so li live the things they're saying, but don't do it like they are. They're self-righteous, you know. Right. They're, they're like, they're, they're, it's it's the spirit of the law, not the way that they're living that you want to like mm -hmm. uh, go after, you know. So I think he's pulling the best out of these different. The zealots, 
freaking awesome passion. Like, get rid right. of the sword, though, dude. You know, like, <laughs> right. that is right. not going to, it's not the kind of revolution we're talking you know? about. <laughs> yeah, Peter, right. put that back. Right, you know, uh, right, exactly. So I think, you know, challenging the sword of the zealots, but, but embracing that passion, you know. Um, uh, it's, even Gandhi, you championed nonviolence. He said, if I have to choose between a coward and a, a, a soldier I'll choose a soldier every day because that passion and that courage can be channeled into love like but mm. can't do anything with a coward you know right, so I, I think right. that's but so I, but I, back to the political thing I, I, I um, when I look at the political options I think we we who follow Christ are going you know like I I am not committed to the donkey or the elephant but for, to the lamb and that shapes how I think uh, like there's not many parties or candidates that are going to be saying love your enemy that are mm-hmm, going to be saying right. blessed are the meek blessed are the merciful you know like the when I look at the beatitudes of Jesus they are the anti- those those are the thing, the places where Jesus said blessed are the poor blessed are the meek blessed are the merciful blessed uh, are, are the peacemakers for they are the children of God all he goes through this list that if you look at that list and you juxtapose it with America like it is the antithesis of the things that we've come to admire and adore and strive yeah, after absolutely um, and, and and that's where I think we've got to really say like Jesus can be bad politics like like uh, and and that that when we sing the beautiful song my hope is built on nothing less than jesus blood and righteousness it makes us suspicious uh of of a lot of the rhetoric that's out there you know and um yeah, yeah. so I, I mean i will say that in this last election um one of the things that is deeply troubling to me though is that uh, you know, studies are now showing that uh, over 80% of white evangelicals um, voted for Donald Trump. And um, that number drops dramatically when you include other evangelicals. But we're right. talking about the, the group that gave, as my friend Rachel Held Evans says, the group that gave me Jesus also gave us Trump. And to me, <laughs> yeah, uh, that, that I don't expect people to get excited about Hillary. Right, um, right. Especially, I think she, she handled the abortion issue uh, like a train wreck. You know, there's right. things like that. I think that she could have done differently. But like, at the end of the day, I look at the Sermon on the Mount. I look at the values of Jesus. And when I look at not just Donald Trump, but the Trump phenomena, I think it's right. bigger than a man. You're like right. we see what happens when we abandon those values of Jesus, and we make idols out of wealth and power and fame, security, yeah, like Donald things. Trump. Yeah, and when fear drives our policies, there's right. not much room for love. And love, and, and Scripture says, love doesn't have much room for fear either. Love casteth mm-hmm. out fear. Mm-hmm. And and when we have fear that is driving, I think much of our policies, um, that's a dangerous thing. When we look at history, some of the the very evil things done in history have been when fear, rather than love, is really compelling uh, a people. And so. Uh, yeah, I, I think we've got a lot of work to do. You know, now the the hopeful thing is I think that young people are changing that dramatically. Young people are overwhelmingly against the death penalty, you know, and and other things, passionately caring about refugees and immigrants, things like that. But uh, um, but there's also a disengagement. You know, uh, the Big Atlantic time. did a yeah. good article where they said, uh, "How will this generation ever change Washington?" when they hate it so much. Right. And I think for the same reason that many young people leave the church, they're also leaving uh, political engagement. And, and I think we can engage appropriately. So to me, I care about politics um, because it's a part of loving my neighbor, because policies affect my neighbor. It's not the only place that I... Uh, think is going to, I don't go into a voting booth thinking this person's going to change the world. I go into a voting booth thinking, how can I uh, do damage control? You know, <laughs> how can I create the right. least collateral damage of right. the principalities and powers in this world? Right. And so it's more about voting against someone than for someone a lot of the time. But I think we do need to be engaged because there's a price for disengaging that, that, uh, leaving folks in power with no accountability. So there are lots of ways that we can vote. We can vote in a voting booth. We can vote, like you said, with our wallets. We can vote every day by the people we align with, the the voices that we amplify, um, and the ways that we stand in solidarity with people. You made a good point about, you know, um, young people, millennials, you know, how do you fix Washington when you hate it so much? And I think that that same 
ideology can be applied to the church. You know, a lot of us yeah. walked out of the church. A lot of people I know, you know, for years I felt like I was just on damage control. Like, tell me your story. What happened? You know, who, how did this youth pastor hurt you or whatever it was? And it's tough because, you know, when you start rethinking, you know, communal life and how do we live together as the Acts Church and you look at, at, at the mega church model that we built, um, it's it's pretty different from what we read in scripture to what we're doing now. And people like, especially you know, people like myself, I just get so, you know, apathetic, like, well, you know what, let's just start our own thing. But that doesn't fix anything either because then you're starting some something else that is also going to be flawed at some point because there's no perfect system on this earth, right? Yeah. Um, there's a great book on Christian by the Barna Group. It's yeah. a phenomenal book. And um, some of their, their numbers in there are in statistics on just, you know, um, how millennials perceive the church, how the culture perceives the church. There's a big... I think that book sort of waking people up. A lot of pastors maybe weren't thinking about it, um, just to the fact that, that that the church this is the time to really reinvent what we that that we are for stuff, not just against things. That we are not just against abortion, but we're for life. You know that we're not just yeah. against you know um, whatever it is. You know, uh, but but we're but we're we're for these things, and it's important because the church. I think the church is the hope of the world. At the end of the day, you know, like the the church, I think has the power to solve so many of these of these humongous problems that we face, whether it's the poor or it's the, uh, um, the, the the orphan problem in our country. I've heard a statistic, I don't know how accurate it is, but I heard that if one church, or if one family in every planted church in America adopted one child, it would it would almost completely solve our, our foster care system, you know? And I believe that, because there are churches everywhere, you know? And so I feel like the church has the potential just to, to do these amazing things and to be a humongous testament to the kingdom of God, to what Jesus stands for, to what he does. And then we find ourselves putting $2 million into a new stage. And find, you know, we find ourselves putting a million dollars into a new light show. And you know, we gotta have the, the, the latest and greatest technology. And hey, they're gonna come to us. And that, that, that model isn't even biblical. I mean, you're not gonna find it. Paul does never writes, just build a, a building and they will come to you. It's always go to them. The church is about you going out and the Sunday morning gathering is for the believer to be edified and to be, you know, filled up and then to be sent out into the culture, yeah. you know, to love people who, wherever you're at, to love those people. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I align with you on a lot of that stuff. Yeah, I like how uh, Gandhi said, be the change you want to see in the world. And I think uh, in some ways that's, that's the invitation we felt, which is to be the change you want to see in the church and, and there there came a point i think that happened for us 20 years ago in that old abandoned cathedral where we said we're going to stop complaining about the church that we've experienced and work on becoming the church that we dream of and and pursuing the church that we love and see in acts and we see alive you know in different iterations throughout history just as the 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 goofiness and you know uh is there as well but you know i i uh had heard a pastor in our neighborhood that said the church is kind of like Noah's Ark. You know, he's talking about the old boat with all the animals. He's like, think about it. All those animals and that thing, it, it must have stunk inside. And he said, the church is kind of like that. It stinks inside sometimes, but if you get out, you're going to drown. <laughs> so, you know, let's do right. something about the stench. Right. Like, and and uh, that that's... Um, what I we we've really, but that's why we engage because we believe that the church is the body of Christ, and we want yeah. to join the local church in our neighborhood. We're we're not just trying to jump ship and be so pretentious to say we're going to do church better than anyone's ever done. And done right. it. I think we'll we'll make the same mistakes. You know, and one of my friends who is now Catholic, uh, his name's Chris Haw. We wrote Jesus for President together. Now okay, he's yep. written a book called From Willow Creek to Sacred Heart. That's his title huh. and, and his journey to become Catholic. And one of the things that he, he talks about in the book is, is um, the, the, they moved into Camden and started a community. And, um, you know, at the time, Camden was rated the worst place to live in America. And he's like, right. I moved there because I believe, uh, I hope for what I do not see. I believe in a God that is changing the world. And he said, I, that's the same reason I joined the Catholic Church, you know, because I believe that there's hope and that God is at work here and that, yeah, there's there's things that need repair. There's like, you know, like faulty plumbing and everything else. But we, <laughs> like, like, you know, like, let's 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 yeah. be a part of that change. So I, I think it it, it um, it's an invitation, you know, and, and that that's not to say we turn a blind eye. I mean, things are that study that you mentioned, you know, unchristian is is really problematic i mean in the sense of what it reveals they interviewed folks in all the states and they asked young people what 
do you think of when you hear the word Christian? And the number one answer was anti-gay. Right. Number two was judgmental. Number three was hypocritical. Right. The other things weren't very good either. Right. <laughs> you know? yes, and, that's right. But I, I think what what I see, they also did another book called Next Christian, you know, that's showing yep. the changing perception yep. and how Christians are doing some pretty amazingly creative and beautiful and life-giving and loving things in the world. Um, so I, I really hope that a generation from now, when people hear the word Christian, they won't think anti-gay, judgmental, and hypocritical, but that they will say things like love you know that's what jesus said right that they will know that we are christians by our love and uh uh and and it'll be because you know we decided to sing a better song we decided not to let um the haters have all the power you know and a a, a pastor in florida that burns the quran hijack our christianity not to have folks uh, from Westboro Baptist Church or whatever that holds signs that say God hates fags and do yeah. that, uh, you know, claiming to be Christian. It doesn't right. look like any version of Christianity to me that I think Jesus would right. celebrate. But I, I think, like, I, I don't want to give that power to them. So I think that, that yeah. we, we sing a better song. You know, we, we try to um, find the darkness in our own hearts and, and live out um, our faith in a way that, that is beautiful and that, you know, points towards Jesus. Yeah, one of the things we... Um, one of the Bible studies I was involved with, we were kind of going through Romans and Hebrews, and you you tend to, when you go through some of those books and you go compare it to the Old Testament, you're saying, man, Israel was such a failure. I can't believe that they, they couldn't uphold. I mean, their one mission in life was to show God to the nations around them, and they just failed miserably. But then you just have to take a step back and look at America. What's the, what, are, what is the mission of Christianity today? It's to show God to the world around. And that study, unchristian, showed what we are showing. Right. And it's not God. Yeah, people didn't walk away after meeting Jesus, scratching their heads, going, why doesn't he like gay people? You know, right, like, right. like they, they were magnetized by his love. And, and uh, you know, so I, I think of... Uh, the things that we've become known for are often the the very things that Jesus railed against of the mm-hmm, Pharisees, yeah. you know, and and the self righteous and 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 so you know I I think it's it's a it's a beautiful time to you know be a part of that change. But that's why we talk a lot about Jesus, you know. And I think that sadly and ironically, a lot of evangelicalism has lost their centering on Jesus, and yeah. we've we, we've as my, my friend Reverend Barber says, like when we lose our focus on Jesus, we end up talking a lot about things Jesus didn't talk about, and we don't talk about the things Jesus spent a lot of time talking about. Right. And and, and you, you wonder, even in this last election, um, how things might be different if folks took their commitment, if Christians took their commitment to Jesus more serious than uh, their commitment to either candidate or party. You know, what, what, how would that look different? If everything we were hearing, we were bouncing off of Jesus. And, and, I, and I think that's the invitation, you know, every day. Is, is, is why we talk about red-letter Christianity, you know, like <laughs> the red letters of Jesus. That, that becomes our lens. Like Jesus, I believe, is the lens through yeah. which we interpret the Bible and the lens through which we interpret the world. That's what we're bouncing yeah. everything off of, you know. And if scriptures seem like they're um, uh, competing with each other, they're, they're in conflict, like Jesus is a referee, you know, right. like, oh, let's bounce yeah, it good. off Jesus. Because you can use scripture in all kinds of distorted ways. I mean, the Ku Klux Klan has an entire section of their website on their theology of the cross. And, you know, as, as my one of my priest friends says, you twist the cross, you get a swastika. Like, huh. you can do, you can use the cross as a weapon if you want to. Absolutely. Um, Shane, if, if, people are listening to this and they want to get like involved with the simple way or what you're doing. Is there a way people can get involved uh, to help out with anything? Totally. Well, I, I throw out ideas all the time on, uh, social media. So my name's Shane Claiborne on, uh, Twitter and Facebook. I, I throw out a lot of different ways people can get involved. We just, uh, raised thirty thousand dollars for a, a house for a neighbor and his, his family so we're we've got uh, uh housing stuff that we're doing at simple homes simplehomes.org and yeah the work we're doing at the simple way uh, is just the simple way.org um there's all kinds of stuff you know just supporting uh the work here we need a lot of monthly supporters you know we don't we we uh 
don't get a whole lot of contributions that are like thousands of dollars. It's more like $50 a month or, you know, $100 a month that people give. And that makes, means the world to us. But beyond giving, giving money too, like we don't think we got the corner on the market of Christianity either. We want people loving their neighbors right where they are, you know, and, um, uh, feeling like they're, they're, using their gifts in really beautiful ways. So we're, there's times where we're looking for contractors and plumbers and, you know, gardeners. But I think we're also every, I think if every person said, how can my passions connect with someone else's pain? You know, how can I use my gifts in a way that give life to other people and find a way to do that, whether it's a nurse or a lawyer. I mean, right now we need everybody's gifts being like oriented to love, you know, and saying like, how can I be a lawyer for love right now? How can I be a builder for justice? So the simple way is one of the places and folks can follow like a lot of our other work on redletterchristians.org. We've got a harmony. We we say we we're harmonizing without homogenizing. So there's a whole lot of really great voices (laughs) on there. Awesome. Well, Shane, I appreciate you coming on. Honestly, thank you for even having us at your home and um, great conversation. Use my toilet. I did. Flushes with sink water. Your toilet is awesome, and I want one. That should be a Shark Tank idea. Is that on Shark Tank? I don't know. I I, I mean, I'm proud to give them a shout out. I think it's called Sink Positive and and, and Sink Twice. They make these like, uh, but you can, you know, yeah. Just we need more creativity. I love it. More imagination. I love it. Shane, again, thanks for having us on. Everyone talking toilets (laughs) and Trump and Jesus. Perfect. I love it. We'll do it again. Awesome. It's great to do it. Definitely. Everyone, thanks for tuning in. We appreciate it. If you like our um, our humble podcast, Rob, where can they email us? Podcast at coffeetheologyandjesus.com. You can also Facebook message us. Um, Speaking of which, briefly before we end here, we had a great message. I'm sorry. What was the person's name, Rob? Uh, he gave us a shout out. I think he's going to send us some some freshly roasted coffee for our next episode down in D.C. So I told you you're going to get a shout out. I'm, I'm pretty pumped about that. Or pre- I'm pretty pumped. So everyone, thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next time. To have the seeds